0: right, there's a whole study called biomimicry that looks at nature to try to solve problems. I turn to nature for wisdom, generally speaking. Now, why do I apply it to Bitcoin? I actually think Bitcoin is best understood as a new type of living organism.
1: This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, plebs of all shapes and sizes, we welcome you into the centennial episode of the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. This week was a captivating chat with one of the brightest minds and the best authors in all of Bitcoin, Brandon Quidam of Swan Bitcoin this RIP session was positively captivating. The three of us cover topics including procreation, Bitcoin's parallels with nature, why Bitcoin is a pioneer species, and how to navigate the fourth turning. You can read, and you should read, all of Brandon's work at brandonquittum.com. You can follow us on Twitter where we're active, at blue underscore collar BTC. And we're also on Noster. Our pub key is linked at the homepage of our website, bluecollarbitcoin.io. If you do have interest in watching video of these chats, subscribe to our Blue Collar Bitcoin YouTube channel. The link is down in the notes. Our current monetary system is built on intermediaries, and we're currently getting a front row seat to the perils of counterparty risk. What makes Bitcoin truly special, genuinely groundbreaking, is the fact that it is the world's first digital bearer asset, something that can be self custodied The device Josh and myself, Dan, have long trusted to protect our private keys is the cold card. It's Bitcoin only, ultra secure, easy to use, and wonderfully inconspicuous looking. Opt out of today's over-leveraged, fractionally reserved shit show by buying a cold card, holding your own private keys, and becoming self-sovereign. Use promo code BCB for a discount on the cold card and peruse a plethora of discounts on all CoinKite products, including the BlockLock, at our affiliate link down in the show notes. The Bitcoin Conference in Miami is coming up quickly, May 18th to the 20th, 2023. You can use code BCB23 for 10% off tickets. Speakers to include Zoltan Pozar, Michael Saylor, Preston Pish, Jack Mallers, Lynn Alden, Alex Gladstein, and so many more. Josh and myself, Dan, will be chopping it up on the analyst desk, and you may also get lucky and catch us with our shirts off on the beach. Tickets will continue to go up from now until the conference date, so get on at ASAP. 10% off tickets with code BCB23. Wow, gentlemen, some, some technical difficulties here to start. I don't know if the U.S. government's onto us or what the deal is, but that was a 15-minute charade of technical difficulties. We're finally... After it. Yep. And uh, we're excited because, ladies and gentlemen, it is Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast episode 100. 100. 100. We've made it a 100 weeks. Uh, we are still married. We have not yet been divorced with all the time we've spent on this. And, Joshua, we have not been fired from the fire department. If those two things continue to hold true, we will keep recording episodes, as far as I'm concerned.
2: I suspect it's because the chief doesn't listen. He doesn't really even know. He doesn't even know our names. I don't think he, yeah. <laughs> it's a funny story about him. He, he gave an award to somebody the other day and he's been there for like what, eight, nine years now, Dan, mm-hmm. he put the wrong name on the certificate. He was given this guy and this guy's been there for like four years. He's like, <laughs> congratulations, Andrew. And he's like, Oh, my name's
1: Adam. <laughs> so he doesn't even know we have this thing going on anyway. And yeah, if we suddenly disappear, we disappear from Twitter, we disappear from Noster, you don't see up, uh, episodes uploading. It's because the chief found out that there's two degenerates that work for him, just slinging all kinds of bullshit over the internet. Yeah. Couldn't ask for a better guest here for 102, Josh. We have I know Brandon Quittum, a long time admirer of your writing and work, Brandon. Welcome in.
0: Appreciate that, guys. I've been, you're on the top of the Bitcoin podcast list of the last year or so for me. So I wow. appreciate your Thank balance you. of like uh, getting to the heart of the details, slaying the sacred cows, having fun, getting cosmic. I think it's just a nice, nice balance. So slaying
1: the sacred hogs is what we do
0: here. <laughs> hey, we do, we do
1: love that, man. I mean, we like to ruffle feathers. We're as bullish as anyone in the business, but, um, We've also thought through enough issues in our life to know that there is a high likelihood that the two of us are clowns. So we're uh, constantly yep. looking internally, realizing uh, with a skepticism towards our own thought patterns. It is helpful to have a partner in that though, because Josh and I are trying to blow holes in each other's logic every single week, but it's fun, man. And uh, that, that comes through in your stuff too. Like we appreciate the balance that comes through your work and and that's the stuff we resonate with. And I think resonates with people outside the bitcoin community the most to be honest with you
0: yeah i agree i think lynn alden does probably the best job of that of staying dispassionate and checks her bias as much as anyone could possibly check their bias as far as i'm concerned
1: agree
2: brandon your piece the the bitcoin is mycelium that was the first time i was introduced to your writing and if i remember right that was i think you dropped that in like december 2018 so i had I was about a year, no, about a year and a half into owning some Bitcoin, watching it, you know, the crests and waves up and downs of it. And that was in a pretty dark time for me when I wasn't really 100% sure about this thing. I was still sitting on like half of what I had because I sold some profits and decided not to get too risk over, you know, over my skis. But I think the mycelium article did, I mean, it, for me especially, and I think for a lot of people, you, you brought such a perspective of like the evolutionary biology perspective to how the parallels of those types of systems are to bitcoin Mm -hmm. and that clicked for me and i think that was something that really locked me in to understanding and getting me on the correct path of you know basically understanding that bitcoin was the anti-fragile beast that it is Uh, so thank you i think you saved me through that bear market and i think we're (laughs) situated right now about the same point in this bear market as that was in that one so we probably have at least another year to go i think so well, you just had the species. What was it? The uh, Pioneer Species article, which also phenomenal. So, appreciate it, man. We'll get those in the show notes. But thank you.
0: Yeah, I do have another one coming, but it's very hard to find time to write with a six month old who's <laughs> struggling to sleep. So, oh. as soon as I can, I will. I always say like once a quarter, and then I'm like, well, I'll write once a year and spend a year yeah. and a half. So we'll the see. The secret.
2: <laughs> Dan and I can vouch for this. The secret is just as much as you want to shake them. Just don't do it. <laughs> I remember always thinking like just people are like how the hell it. does somebody shake a baby? And then you have a baby, and you're like, I
1: get it. I understand how this happens now.
0: It's so true.
1: It is quite the phase. Like I've got a one year old and a three year old, and there's just things in life that when you experience, you can't believe that everybody else experiences. Like when you have a kid, you're like, this is so fucking insane. I can't believe that every other homo sapien up to me has had children and gone through this. And I, my wife and I were kind of unpacking it over, a, over some wine the other night, just saying like, this is probably going to be a phase that we look back on as maybe the best time of our life, but the hardest time of our life. And it's really hard. It's hard for mm-hmm. everyone, but especially for a reclusive, selfish prick like me, it may come out <laughs> on the show like I'm this big extrovert. Josh is the same way. I love being alone. I've always loved being alone. My favorite thing to do is sit around, write, read books, run, golf. And so when you have two children, it messes you up in the most wonderful way possible. It pokes straight into those soft spots of selfishness, but it is a hard ass phase. There's no getting around it.
0: Mm -hmm. 100%. Um, I heard a quote that I think sums it up the best, which is that having kids destroys your life. And then hands you a better one. Yeah. Oh. Yeah.
2: That's a great way to place it. That really priority
0: shift, but all of a sudden you don't care as much about the old things, Exactly. Right. And uh, you see people
2: that haven't had kids and I'm not criticizing people that haven't or couldn't or whatever, but the, well, we could, but, well, we could, but I'm trying Yeah, hey, let's just go ahead and criticize them. Fuck it. Um, they prize their dog as if this is a child. and like, you know, there, you see them going to the drive through at Starbucks and ordering a drink for their dog. And this dog is drinking like a $5 Starbucks drink. Like, you really fucked up, and Jesus, uh, watching that happen hurts.
0: There's more dogs in America than there is kids under eighteen. That just really to is to crazy. underline that point. It's probably
2: more
1: guns than kids under eighteen too. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> this is the, this is the weirdest thing about having kids, because like you know, we reference on this show, our, our we've got people of all ages that do our career. So we've got you know, fifty five year olds on their way out, and twenty two year olds who who are just living in a different world. But when you explain children to a 24 year old that has no kids and is living the single life in the city they they think oh my god that sounds horrendous and you're thinking to yourself it is horrendous but i wouldn't trade it for anything
2: but there's a phases in your life you go through like to me right now as i'm almost 38 like thinking about staying at a club till three o'clock in the morning and getting completely blackout wasted with a bunch of people that don't give a shit about you that sounds horrible i mean we'll do it I we'll do it in miami josh but it's going to be terrible yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> you just completely diffused where i was going <laughs> <laughs> sorry brandon we should let you talk some man yeah, we're wait, really hot here's the mic my here. first
1: question
0: for you brandon where did can i finish one yes, more please, on fatherhood before we go please do yeah yeah okay cuz this was a real thing for me where and i first to empathize with people who don't have kids and think it's hard and doesn't sound like a good idea i totally get it I was 34 when we had our first kid, first and only kid. And three years prior to that, I was in the same boat. Like I could have had a dog at Starbucks, no question. Um, And then I realized that, wait a minute, do I really just want to fuck off forever? And our life's great. I could just fuck off forever and have fun. Or do I want to take on more responsibility? And I found that increasing responsibility correlates with increased purpose Mm. and meaning in life. And so maybe I could do this a little bit longer, but I'm going to be 50 and I'm going to be sad if I don't reproduce, right? And then going evolutionary biology. That's the purpose of our biology. And so if you don't reproduce, your body, your genes are designed to scream at you and make you feel bad because you're not doing your job. Uh, Especially we talk about women having a biological clock. That's absolutely real. Men have the same thing. I don't think it's as uh, physically relevant day to day but it's absolutely real and if men don't have purpose we're not really that great we just sort of flail in the abyss and then i thought about my responsibility to our species okay we're in a hard time right now and if i'm in a position where i think i'm a good citizen i have something to offer and i don't reproduce that's bad for our species right and so there's some purpose there some some uh species level responsibility and one more step further Am I really just going to fuck off and do whatever I want so that my bloodline ends? My great, 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 great grandmother survived a Viking raid and got raped by some random Viking (laughs) and lived this horrible life, survived all these horrible winters just so I can be like, no, I'd rather just travel.
2: Like, (laughs) come on. I mean, (laughs) I didn't think you were going to bring Viking rape into this, but I'm glad you did because because you've opened up so many paths for us to travel
1: from this point on wow i while we're on this let's go in this direction because the the, one of the things i want to get into that you referenced while you were on with mccormick brandon was just kind of the malthusian fear spell of like homo sapien is going to exceed the carrying capacity of this planet the reason that this comes to mind is i actually feel like i'm working out of this frame of thinking and Yuval Harari, who I, who has had a big impact on my worldview, Same here. I disagree with a ton of things from Yuval Harari, but I agree with a ton of things. And I think he does inform, he's a great stepping stone to like zoomed out first principled thinking. But one of the areas that I think I was duped a little bit by his logic is this idea that our species is exceeding the carrying capacity of the planet. You draw this important distinction that says we are not like other mammals. We are not like elk and deer and moose we innovate we have technology that enables us to exceed where we were before what are your thoughts on that let's get into this topic a little bit
0: yeah absolutely um this is an important topic because right now the malthusian ideas are becoming more or less mainstream by our institutional overlords the wef the bill gates this type of like techno utopian futurist silicon valley god complex where we can just um yeah like play god and take over the world that type of thing is all rooted in malthusian thinking so thomas malthus was an economist from a few hundred years ago and he looked at population ecology and what he saw was that a population of let's say deer they would expand in their ecosystem until they ate all the food and then all the population would crash and he charts a of Thing with um, human population, uh oh, we're growing too fast. At a certain point, we're going to collapse. So maybe it's better that we don't let people reproduce or we sort of try to manage our, our population as a species. It sounds logical. However, as you mentioned, that it entirely breaks down when you look at how humans use technology, right? We're tool builders and we build technologies that expand our carrying capacity. Right? We harness energy. We harness denser forms of energy. We use mechanical power in the Industrial Revolution. We learn how to u- turn natural gas into fertilizer. We use uh, more advanced farming techniques. All of these things allow us to continually expand our population without this scary collapse. And so that Malthusian idea, again, permeates through all of their central planner types. They're trying to express it now, but the entire premise is faulty. We're not gonna do it in the future. We're gonna use more technology to overcome it again. And side note, even if we could, let's say, or even if we may fall off a population cliff, which I don't think is true, do we really think handing the power to a small group of elites to steer our species is the right approach? Right. I I wouldn't sign up for that. I don't know anyone else who would. And so it's wrong from a moral standpoint, it's wrong from a technical standpoint, and we should just throw all those ideas out Um, yeah, Yeah.
1: we're basically telling our audience, go fuck. We are, uh, get off of this podcast and go fuck, go reproduce, have some babies and it's the best decision you'll ever make. This is a, this is kind of back to the whole scarcity mindset versus an abundance
2: mindset. And the scarcity mindset is the, you know, impetus behind some of the most terrible things that have happened in human history. Um, this is, this is literally trying to kill other people to take their resources or, you believing that they're evil, like a whole subsect of people, the genocides and all the terrible things in history. Um, that's the window you're looking through there versus the abundance mindset, which is we're going to make this thing better. We're going to find technology. And like like you said, um, Malthus couldn't have figured that we were going to have tractors that could do the, the work of a thousand horses. You know, He couldn't have known we were going to find denser sources of energy. All of these things were unpredictable. And we, we talked in the last podcast about how badly wrong most people are predicting the future, even the people that are experts in their field. Uh, I think it was Einstein that said we'd never be able to harness the atom. In, in 1932, he said that. And then in 10 years later, we did. So, yeah, take this stuff with a grain of salt, even the stuff you hear from the experts, because they probably have no idea what they're talking about.
1: Yeah. Brandon has no idea what he's talking about, folks, is basically what we just said. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Brandon, i got to ask you this before we go any further. Do you have a biology background? I just, I mean, all your work has that theme in it. Did you, is it, are you undergrad biology or is this just just an interest that you have that you kind of just dove down that path?
0: Yeah. People always confuse me for a biology biologist, which feels good, but no, I took a single biology class in college. I studied mechanical engineering and then shift to a business degree, which is what I graduated in. And that's it. I'm just a extremely curious nerd who loves learning and, I just absolutely need to understand how things work if I'm remotely interested. Yep. And, you know, I think it's one of my best traits, but it also gets me in trouble. Let's say I'm with a wife or hanging out and I was like, wait, what is that? And she'll give me an answer and I don't really buy it. i will be like, I don't think that's actually it. she will be like, well, you know, I don't know. And, I was, and in my head, I'm like, throw that out. That's tainting my understanding of the world. <laughs> now I need to go read Wikipedia to, to, you know, backfill this. And so, yeah, it's really just obsessive learning and... I latch on to biology one because I love it and I'm attracted to complexity. I'm not, I don't like simple things. I like complex systems. I like things that can't be mastered. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in biology, right? It has this repetitive iteration process over millennia. And what that does is it, it makes things efficient, extremely efficient. Uh, nature doesn't waste energy, right? Everything has a purpose. And if we want to solve design challenges in our modern world, We don't have to use our big brains, even though we want to, right? We think very highly of ourselves, but the reality is our brains deceive us. And most of our design challenges have already been solved in nature. We just have to know how to look and where to find it, how to replicate, it, how to apply it. right? There's a whole study called biomimicry that looks at nature to try to solve problems. And there's all these cool examples like the bullet train in Japan. They use like the shape of a bird's beak in order to aerodynamically go through the sound or through the tunnel and not create a sonic boom or uh, like a helicopter w- was was a stolen out of nature. I don't remember where. And so essentially I turned to nature for wisdom, generally speaking. Now, why do I apply it to Bitcoin? I actually think Bitcoin is best understood as a new type of living organism, right? It's not software, it's not money, I mean, it is those things, but it's so much more than that. And the fact that it self-replicates, it pays us to do its bidding, there is no leader, it sort of hijacks us to do its work, uh, right? It is this sort of super organism where we're, we're part of the organism just by talking about it or, or maybe we're running a node, maybe we're uh, contributing to miners' profitability, whatever it is. That combined creates an organism. This organism learns. It gets attacked. What does it do? It routes information around the the people and the developers. New code appears. It's like a new enzyme that an organism might produce uh, when faced with adversity. And over time it learns, it builds a a library of new software patches. And yeah, I just think that's the right way to think about this thing. And then when I write about biology in Bitcoin, I think it's just a useful lens for people to grapple with. Not everyone understands economics or Uh, software development or any of these type of things. However, pretty much everyone intuits biology. We are biological beings. We experience it daily. And so I just think it's a nice way to get the message across. It's a nice delivery um, tool there. And people latch on to stories, not facts. So you got to inject a little narrative. And I I apologize to the mycologists and the actual biologists out there because I take many liberties. I anthropomorphize constantly um, but it, it's all for a narrative effect.
1: What I think of as you're talking there a second ago, if you're just looking at, at Bitcoin from a high level, new solutions are being created, right? There's a problem. Bitcoin creates a solution. The parallel there, which you draw a lot, which I think is powerful, is that nature does the same thing. Like evolution is solutions to problems as, as species progress. And that doesn't happen on accident. This gets down to the fact that relentless and unbridled iteration are what lead to innovation, both in biology and in open systems like Bitcoin. I think a word that you could draw a parallel to here is is freedom, right? In the In the realm of biology, you could say that natural selection is just endless freedom to try, which leads to evolving progression, right? And the same thing is true in Bitcoin, but that doesn't happen on accident. And I think that's what people misconstrue. It's like, oh, we can just create new solutions through central planning. No, you can't. I mean, you may be able to get lucky every once in a while, but without that just relentless iteration, you're not going to come up with solutions that are as good. And that for me is the nature parallel that just keeps hitting over and over for me again about why these dumb, Neutral open source protocols just clean up over time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Man. There's a key point here, which is uh, incrementalism, or you could say iteration, right? Nature doesn't have a fish and then uh, the fish has a baby and that fish can walk on land with four legs, right? It has like sturdier fins so that it can walk on the ground and then maybe it has an ability to leave the water for a couple seconds to get some food or whatever. Right, there's these incremental steps, and that's absolutely necessary if you want to have something be survivable. Right, Otherwise, you're putting this Franken monster uh, into the, the ecosystem, and it's not going to be able to reproduce. Or you you create a Franken money, the CBDC, and you just artificially create this. You just plan it day one and launch it. That never works. It's the same with product development in a startup, right? You want to iterate often, learn from your users, adapt. Like That is nature's way. And if we want to build robust systems that last a long time, that's the type of thinking we need. Um, there's, there's a law, I think it's called Gaul's law, which essentially says that if you want to build a complex thing, you have to start with simple things first. This is the same in biology. This is the same in, in, in everywhere. And Ethereum takes the opposite approach, right? They right. want to just keep making a more complex thing to solve the, the old problem. And the new solution creates two more problems and it just spirals where bitcoin says the the base layer is dumb and simple and it does one thing well and if that is reliable and sturdy it acts like a, a you know concrete foundation upon which we can build higher layers of abstractions referencing that base layer now you can't build a tall house without a concrete foundation and you know bitcoin's the concrete foundation
2: yeah this also makes me think of the parallels between uh, communism and capitalism as well like communism is this top-down edict driven uh, method where you choose a route and if you're wrong you can't allow yourself to be wrong so you just press harder and you force that situation to be worse and worse instead of experimental failure which is capitalism which is a thousand companies trying a thousand ways 990 of them failing 10 of them surviving and one of them maybe being that the apex predator but it's all you know this all balls this all ends up kind of siphoning down into the same thing just a thousand different ways to look at it and i think that's why it's so great that we've got people writing these articles, taking their specific angle and that that's what you know speaks to me. Something else speaks to Dan, but it's uh, it's good stuff.
1: I, I think it's a good parlay, Brandon, into you talking a little bit about why Bitcoin from the view of freedom. like you've suggested in some of your pieces, and I wholeheartedly agree that the sort of the, the phase of the of the fourth turning that we're in here, there's a move towards socialism, collectivism, It may have good motivation behind it, but at the end of the day, it may lack some substance in terms of what's actually going to function and work and what is ethical. Talk to us a little bit about Bitcoin, freedom, anything you want to riff on there.
0: Yeah. I I don't know if we want to open the fourth turning can of worms because that takes us down a pretty particular path, (laughs) but- Let's give uh, that some time yet. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, When I think about freedom, and I'll, I'll reference some ideas from the fourth turning without bringing it up which is that if you look around right now, society is going off the rails. Our institutions are failing. We're not really sure what to do. And in that type of meta context, our species decides that the instinct is to collectivize. We want to work together to solve the hard problem, right? It's very logical. Um, But it also creates a risk where we centralize too hard and we we throw the baby out with the bathwater, essentially. And we just like give up all the ideas of liberalism that made us successful in the first place. And uh, Matt Ridley, an author of mine, he wrote a book about innovation and we're going to tie this back to freedom. But essentially what Matt, Matt Ridley found is that the most prosperous countries have certain things in common and they're all related to freedom. So it's freedom of the press. It's uh, freedom of speech. You can create a business. You, you know, you can talk bad about the government, right? You can get banking, stuff like that. And so what he found was freedom creates the, the conditions that enable innovation and innovation is what creates prosperity. So you need to have this like base, uh, lowercase L liberal society. So we are all free to create and, you know, free markets, et cetera. And what that does, that incentive structure is best for humans because it channels our innate creativity, our innate desire to better our lot in life and help out our, our neighbors which creates all this innovation, all this business. And that is where prosperity comes from. Um, prosperity doesn't come from the government. Prosperity doesn't come from any sort of law or tax, none of that stuff. It comes from innovation and yeah, that that's the key. So we want freedom, right? right. And what is the way to make the most freedom uh, available per country? Uh, it would be through Bitcoin because Bitcoin unlocks the money. It takes the money out of the central planners and puts it back in the market which now monies compete. And when there's competition, uh, money versus money, what happens? The consumer wins. So you and I win when money competes. We're free to choose the best money. Again, back to nature, that is the Darwinian competition between monies, Mm -hmm. may the best money win, and that produces the best outcomes. So Bitcoin creates freedom, freedom creates innovation, innovation creates prosperity.
2: And this all goes back to this game theoretical, like let's just say greed, for example. People take that as an evil thing, but greed can be harnessed for absolute good. Like if you want to get rich, you're going to go probably take more chances than somebody else, probably risk your money a little more to hopefully and in the end gain a lot more money. But in the process of doing that, you create a company that gives a thousand people jobs or what have you, um, or, you know, investors are, ge- are generating an income from it, but that greed can be harnessed for good and greed is innately human. We're all greedy. So you can either harness that for good or you can allow that to destroy people. And I think the best way, obviously, the best way to do is harness it for good.
1: To get practical, my question or or what I'd like to throw out to the three of us is how this actually plays out. Because I agree with what you wrote in one of your pieces talking about how it seems that if we just take America, we're sort of doomed to repeat a, a decade of expanding federal government. Like when there's a big problem... The easiest, simplest solution to impart is to move towards this collectivist approach. Even just today, you've got Biden suggesting to massively increase capital gains tax. Like, I think we're in for a ton of this. I don't think this should surprise you, especially with where we're at in the debt cycle and the widening wealth gap and all the factors we could spend an hour talking about. There's a lot of pain. We've somehow got to stop the leaking somewhere and the lowest hanging fruit is gonna be consumed. And a lot of that is gonna be redistribution and collectivism and socialism and all this stuff. Um, so I guess my question there is, how do you see that trending? Any, any thoughts to fill in there? And then how does Bitcoin actually start making inroads to reverse this trend or heal some of these wounds?
0: Yeah, good question. That's super, super in the zeitgeist right now. So I, I would turn to the last um, last period that I would say mirrors this. Again, referencing the fourth turning, but let's not go there. The 1930s and 1940s were a very similar time for our country as they are now. So we we had the um, Great Depression. Then we had this period of rebuilding leading up to World War II. And in that period, the government got desperate. And so were the people. And what did the government do? It made gold illegal, forcing all this financial repression onto its people Um, It raised marginal income tax rate to like 69% around there. We created social security, created FDIC, right? Created all these insane programs at the time as a way to try to bolster that volatility. And I think it was pretty bad for individuals in the short term because they pretty much no one made money for a decade, essentially. And we're in the same exact situation now where the government's backed into a corner and they're going to get greedy. Right. That's why I'm, I'm concerned about real estate long term, because you can't pack up a real estate. It's not defensible. The government could triple your real estate tax year over year for five years straight if they wanted to. And, you know, that might be a way that they try to raise raise money, doubling capital gains tax or trying to tax energy for Bitcoin. Right. These are all of the state flailing. And I think we should expect this. I think it's going to continue getting worse. Um, now, how do we get out of the solution? The short answer is I have no idea Um, the slightly longer answer is I think Bitcoin has a role to play here and I think it comes down to an emergent adoption process which is that individuals can look around and they say well uh, this sucks what do I do about it okay maybe Bitcoin can help okay seems like Bitcoin's helping I'll just uh, shuffle a little bit of my acorns over to Bitcoin over time. And that gives me a little bit more wealth. That gives me a little more security about the future. That feels good, right? So it helps me in my family's life. And maybe I tell a friend, maybe my community adopts Bitcoin. Maybe now 10% of Americans adopt Bitcoin. Maybe El Salvador adopts Bitcoin. Maybe corporations do. And each yeah. one of these instances, uh, individuals or orgs are saving themselves. And that reduces the, the percentage of the population that's in a bad situation, Right. So you're just slowly getting people on this life raft over time, which reduces the risk of lashing out, um, because if people are backed into a corner, that that's the concern. Right. If you have nothing to lose, that that's the violent situation. Um, and so if we wanted to get out of this, we would want uh, our governments in some capacity to adopt Bitcoin um, or at least a large percentage of the population. So we don't get screwed. Um yeah, the, the short answer is it's messy. Make yourself anti-fragile, buy Bitcoin, learn, reduce your debt load, et cetera. Um, yeah, it's a hard one. It's going to be an interesting time.
1: I think the other comment I, I have is that people maybe mistake the time frame we're talking on here. When we talk about Bitcoin succeeding, there's a lot of different time frames that that could happen on and, and succeed is a loaded term in and of itself but it could bitcoin could amass a, an enormous market cap on a 5-year time frame on a 15-year time frame on a 50-year time frame or more and i think w- one thing that that i've sort of digested as we've you know clenched into this space firmer is that you could be short-term jurisdictionally screwed i'm thinking today of this uh, suggestion also from biden of a 30% tax on basically crypto mining. And there's this tweet by Troy Cross I'm going to read. He said a 30% tax is a de facto ban. End of the mining industry in the US were it to happen. He said it won't happen. Bitcoin itself, it won't care. Bitcoin related emissions, they'd go up. The point I'm making here is if this goes through and you're a miner in the United States of America, you're fucked or you're hampered significantly. There's things they could do that I understand that it's cute to talk about jurisdictional arbitrage, and I think that will play out. Sovereign individual thesis will play out more and more as the decades trot on. But there's things they could do in your jurisdiction, wherever you live around the world, that could really hamper you uh, short term. But the protocol won't care on a long enough time frame. So as this sort of plays out, there could be some grandiose collectivist visions that are misguided that really hamper this technology. And that could be super unfortunate for the people that live in that jurisdiction. But long-term, Bitcoin's bigger than you. It's bigger than your family. It's probably bigger than your generation. And that's something we kind of have to grapple with when we're dealing with something this powerful. Yeah, that's. I was
2: going to bring that up as well, that the 30% tax makes it completely untenable. Like the, the prices would be basically forcing them out. They'd have to be going to Eastern Europe or something. But um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the energy aspect of this as well. Um, you had, in your most recent piece, you talked a bit about, how base load is basically an unchanging amount of energy, right? So if they're producing X amount of energy, they want something above and beyond that for if somebody or a bunch of people turn on their air conditioner all at once or whatever, whatever that reason they must have an extra le- amount. But the point is, is that can you go ahead and explain to us why it is that Bitcoin mining on, say, ERCOT in Texas isn't adding any CO2 to the atmosphere? Why is it that um, that is a misnomer to say that at this point?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Let's just start with the visual. So you plug in a Bitcoin miner, it just looks like a little computer. You plug that into the wall and it's drawing electricity. Do you see any little plumes of smoke coming out of there? Uh, no. Um, hopefully Bitcoin's, not. Hopefully not. That's right. And if you do, more
1: uh, common, <laughs> You're going to hear some lights and sirens around the corner.
0: <laughs> that's right. And we're going to take the ASICs with us. Part of the job. Yep. Um, so obviously there's no CO2 produced when you plug in a miner, right? So then you have to say, where did that energy come from? That powered Bitcoin. And then you might look at the energy mix that powers Bitcoin, which is over 50% renewable, which is the highest percentage renewable industry on the planet. And, okay, so it's at least the most energy efficient industry or the least amount of CO2 uh, consumed on average for any industry. But then you might look at the fact that, well, that energy that Bitcoin consumed, what if Bitcoin didn't consume it? right? If you didn't plug in the machine, what happened to the energy? And the answer is nothing. It was wasted. It was electrons shot into the ground. So what that means is that Bitcoin is on net consuming very little net new energy that would have had to be produced, right? So if it's energy from coal, then yes, those electrons that we produce um, some of, or produce some amount of CO2. But on net, it's a very, very tiny percentage. And bitcoin is a unique consumer right so this whole this whole thing is just due to the fact that people are naive to how energy markets work and bitcoin's a unique consumer which allows these properties that aren't concerning for the co2 side Um, bitcoin must have cheap energy right so it's not going to turn the the coal plant back on to produce energy or anything like that Um, and it's flexible load so if an end user needs that energy bitcoin turns off Right? So again, no, no marginal energy created. Um, it's also portable. So if that miner is no longer profitable because we put a 30% tax, all those machines probably go to the global south, eastern Europe, uh, Siberia, etc. And so that's just shooting us in the foot and giving the control of the network to a less scrupulous uh, leader, a less scrupulous nation with lower emission standards and a lower uh, mix of renewable energy no matter where you go. And so it's it's very much a foot gun i hope troy's right that it has no legs and it's really just posturing but even still it pisses me off um are we gonna are we gonna be in a country where the government says what is or isn't a good use of energy if you purchased it legally right what are we talking about is pornography going to be taxed uh are we gonna talk about the society benefits of all these things like this is insane Right, I bet if you looked up the average
2: Chat GPT uh, question, we'd be like, "Why the hell are we spending all this energy having this thing spun up so that it can answer?" I mean, <laughs> I'm not even going to go ahead and speculate because it's going to get dark.
1: But yeah, it's it's all it's ninety nine percent bullshit. I'm sure it, it is crazy to play this out though, and and think about how draconian this gets if they start regulating what the market can and can't expend energy on. I mean, it it and this is where. One of the things I appreciate about you, Quidam, is that you embrace the complexity and understand that there's no easy way out of it. Like your your quote from your time with Peter was Bitcoin mining is everything you don't understand about energy combined with everything you don't understand about Bitcoin. And that's a lot of things you don't understand. I mean, Josh and I are are in the middle of that journey right now. We've spent at this point now thousands of hours studying this shit. We do this as a part-time job studying Bitcoin and we're still confused by stuff. So to expect that people are going to grasp this is unrealistic. I don't know how to say it. You can't just thump people over the head and say understand this. That's that's not how this works. Right. And trying to con- trying to condense this into some kind
2: of a meme where you can gain that kind of leverage is impossible. There's no kind of meme you're going to create that's going to make people understand even in you know even a, a small percentage of this idea. I, I I don't know. Maybe maybe Musk can come up with a meme for that because he's uh, the meme lord after all.
1: Bef- before we go into more specifics on energy, which we're going to do, how do we win this narrative war, dude? Like, do you have any thoughts yeah. on this, Brandon? Because the narrative war is what I ultimately do. matters. What well, What's your thoughts here?
0: Yeah, the hard part is, as you mentioned, um, energy markets are very complex, and people are time poor. So there's no no reasonable scenario where everyone gets smart on energy and realizes that logically it's okay, right? Bitcoiners didn't realize this two years ago, and we're all nerd. We're a fraternity of learners Kicking each other's ass and calling each other's out like promoting Education around this and we're just starting to figure it out now um, the Ethereum bro still thinks that uh, Proof-of-work is bad for the environment They're still clueless and they're as close to this as anyone could possibly be right so education will help but it's not a mass-market education thing I think there's two ways to look at this. One is that Bitcoin incentivizes the mining process, whether we like it or not, whether our jurisdiction says yes or no. So someone somewhere is going to be hashing because the Bitcoin network pays them to, right? So it's happening and it creates jobs, it creates tax revenue, it creates net new energy assets, which we'll talk about, I'm sure. And so I think one way to look at this is just to highlight the real world implications, the positive externalities of this thing which may be jobs or energy efficiency or net new energy assets or many other things. And so that's one side. Um, and I guess I think that's the most important side. We just need to explain it. Now, you could also say we should educate the right people, which I think is what some of the like Troy Crosses are doing or the Bitcoin Policy Institute. I think that's a noble approach. Like get to the political staffers, uh, get to the businesses to, to adopt this thing. Um, but I think the the other harsh reality here, and, and you could throw away everything that I just said, and I think that the most important point here is that people learn from pain. Pain is a teacher. And yeah. so we can talk about solar panels and and going green, and most of people would talk about that, don't actually understand what they're saying or what they're asking for. Um, but again, we can't expect them to. So they're, they're talking into the wind, and then um, Germany loses... 300 year old industrial, uh, businesses, because now is the hardest time for those businesses. Think about the last 300 years and now they can't afford to, to run their business because we thought that getting energy from Russia and going green and Germany was the right approach. And so it, you know, as we have more pain, people will start to realize, and I hope what this means is we, in five years, we laugh about the days where we, we talked about ESG. I mean, laugh about the low interest rate time when we didn't know how good we had it and we were just pontificating about solar panels. I'm resonating strongly with what
2: you're saying here. And I, I think you're right because if people aren't incentivized to understand Bitcoin, if they don't have a reason to, mm. they don't have an impetus to need to understand it. Like their, their, their state is not overreaching on them to the degree their, their banks are not failing. Um, their money's not hyperinflating then most people who aren't nerds like us are not digging into this kind of stuff. They just aren't. So if a, if the a priori problem is is that people just don't care about Bitcoin, so then they're not going to dive any deeper than that to understand the energy implications, the reason that proof-of-work mining is such a material difference between Bitcoin and everything else in the space. It's a humongous, momentous difference. And But if you don't think Bitcoin matters or is a big deal and you think the other 10,000 or 30,000 other shitcoins are just as capable or just as useful, then of course, you're going to think mining using electricity is a waste of energy and bullshit and stupid. I mean, when it comes down to it, you just, you first have to, you really need to have to understand why Bitcoin matters to begin with
1: in order for this to, for the pieces of this to even begin to fall into place. Totally. And there lies the opportunity. Like when I think about information asymmetry, I immediately think opportunity. This is extremely hard to understand, and for that reason, that's why it's a good buying opportunity. The other comment here, in reading your Pioneer Species piece, I I wrote down the word jurisdictional game theory, and we talk on this show a lot about this thing is either going to work or it's not going to work from both a software, hardware, but also wetware, right? Uh, human being game theory perspective. And if... Bitcoin accomplishes what you and we and most of the Bitcoin community suggest it does, which is that it's going to bolster energy grids and reduce energy prices. That is going to be a jurisdictional game theory that will eventually be irresistible, especially in a global landscape that's going to be increasingly isolationist and with growing energy scarcity. Like this, if this thing comes in and just makes your energy situation better. If you think politicians and regulators are going to shoo this away, eventually it's going to click for them. And that's what I think is so powerful and that's why I would tell people, "Chill, I understand we need to win the we need to expend energy on the narrative war and and, and all that stuff. But ultimately this thing is either going to work or it's not going to work. There's there's a, there's a binary aspect to that to its functionality. And if it does work, uh it's going to be borderline irresistible on a long enough time frame. You kind of agree with that and any any follow-ups there, Brandon?
0: Yeah, I think there's a lot to talk about here. I think I should start just a, a quick pitch on why energy matters. I think most Bitcoiners are aware of this, but I think it's still a, a new topic for us. And by the way, I'm a complete neophyte. Energy markets might be more complex than Bitcoin. I try and I think I understand it. And then I hear a guy like Sean from Lancium speak and I'm like, oh, yeah, never mind. I don't know anything. You should take everything I say with a grain <laughs> of salt. Uh Anyways, so why does energy matter? And the answer is obviously yes. Energy is primary to life. Life is just ways to organize energy and to use it better. And humans are the same way. We talked about expanding our carrying capacity. The majority of that is just being better at channeling energy so that we can change our environment more to our likings, right? I live in a house with temperature. I just push a little button on my phone. Oh, 72 degrees, right? This is all because we got good at channeling energy. And I forgot who said this stat, but it's like, oh man, I don't even know the stat, but it's essentially like we harness roughly 80,000 human. Uh, if you can convert a human into horsepower or energy consumption, every day a modern human in America consumes like 80,000 individual humans, uh, like manual labor. If you think wow. about what we channel, like we order something from Amazon, what went into that, right? Our computer, the internet, all the driver car, or whatever. And so we're essentially just scaled humans through our technology, and it's totally abstract. Um, To bring it back to real life, though, energy is required for food, for shelter, to create things, healthcare, transportation, right? If you live in Africa, for example, you might pay 3 to 5x the energy cost that we do here in the U.S., and that's not going to be very helpful when you need to charge your phone or you want to have a light after dark or you want to just manufacture anything so you're not reliant on foreign imports, or you have a premature child and they need an incubator, and your hospital doesn't have steady power so you can't have an incubator, so you lose your child, right? Super, super real stuff having more energy. And it's very easy for us to poo-poo Bitcoin's energy use in America when things are easy here, but that is not the norm. Um, Most people, I think it's 10% of people in the Congo have electricity, Um, that's shocking and it's not as bad around Africa, but it's still very bad. And so energy is the most important thing we can do to provide, uh, flourishing for humans. It is the master commodity, all human progress flourishing is downstream of that energy. Mm. So if you want to help out the lower socioeconomic rungs of our species, making people not poor is the best way to do that. And in order to do that, they need energy. Um, and then they can actually help themselves, which I think is the, the coolest part of the pioneer species thing, which is that um, we can look at our environment and say, we have untapped energy resources. And we say, well, we want to tap those. And then we realize that the capital expense to do so is very high. And so traditionally, they would look to the IMF or some predatory lender to come in and help uh, develop some energy assets in exchange for all the fresh water and unfair debt terms and essentially giving all the sovereignty to our overlords. That's the trade. And you might take that trade because in the short term, your country has more water or energy or a new football stadium or whatever. But long term, you, you, you hand the keys to the castle away. So enter Bitcoin. Bitcoin can be the, the energy subsidy or the energy asset subsidy that you need in order to bootstrap energy assets on your own. Because those en- the miners show up on day one and they're buying that energy and they're selling blocks to the Bitcoin network, right? So it's it's guaranteed revenue from day one, which decreases the capital cost of that investment, decreases the risk of that energy assets, increases the ROI. It allows foreign investors better terms who may want to help out, right? And so it allows Africa to take advantage of their abundant energy resources, put them in their local environment. and. You know, again, in the Bitcoin way, it's an emergent process that helps a local community. It can scale down to the smallest microgrid imaginable, right? We mentioned the Congo, 10% of Congolese people have electricity. And the reason why I wrote Pioneer Species, by the way, is there's a French company that put miners down in, uh, tapped a, a dam, a hydro dam in uh, Virunga National Park in the Congo, very mountainous region, lots of waterfalls. And they essentially just put some shipping containers with miners there And they started um building out energy assets. And most people don't have electricity, so they cut down trees and they they cook with biomass that they literally harvest out of the natural forest or the natural park, national park, which means little kids are dying from smoke and destroying resources, et cetera. And so now enter the Bitcoin miners, they help build out the energy infrastructure. Now there's revenue to transport that energy to the end consumer. Right now you're reducing crime, reducing poverty, increasing standard of life, you're increasing the environment. Right, This is a major narrative violation. The positive externalities of Bitcoin miner are doing all the things that the New York Times says Bitcoin, um, all the problems it's causing. So it's the exact opposite. And once I saw that picture, I started just, again, first principle, think through the incentives. And what it it came to is that individuals are going to use Bitcoin miners to produce new energy assets that weren't previously economical. And if you bring in new energy assets, you're producing more economic viability in that region. You produce jobs. Now you can make things. If you attract jobs, you attract people. And now you have restaurants and bars to service that. And so you literally turn a desert with nothing on it but untapped energy into a flourishing human population over probably decades, right? But Bitcoin forces us to think long-term. And so that is the pioneer species, right? I'll I'll give a quick pitch on that and then I'll shut up. No, Um, keep going. Love this. Pioneer species is a unique organism uh, in population ecology and its role is to bootstrap new life in an area where there isn't any or very little. So the famous example is an island um, off of Iceland, It's essentially a volcanic island, just desolate rock. And then you ask the question, is it desolate rock forever? Just floating in the ocean. And the answer is no, because we have these pioneer species. And the pioneer species are the the first ones to colonize that horrible condition. And a famous example is a lichen, which is a symbiosis between some sort of plant, some sort of fungus, maybe some bacteria. They're kind of colonies of life that all work together. And this lichen attaches itself to the rock. The mycelium literally burrows into the rock and digests it externally through chemistry. The plant has little solar panels, right? Photosynthesis, it takes the sun's energy and feeds the plant and the mushroom. So they form a partnership and they literally turn volcanic rock into soil. And it creates an ecosystem. And over time, that, that volcanic rock allows um, new types of organisms to come. Right. And over time, those organisms get more complex. And before long, it's a forest. And that's the Bitcoin miners. They go find that desolate rock. They make it economically viable. They attract more complex life over time. And then the, the, the coolest part is, as soon as that pioneer species takes over the island, it actually gets shaded out by the more complex organisms. Mm. And where I live, that's an oak forest. Um, over there, I don't know what it is. That's like the climax community. And then that pioneer species is kicked out. So it's gonna go try to find another place to do that same process all over again. And the miners also do that, right? As soon as it's an actual uh, complex human situation, the miners can't pay for the energy anymore because you and I will pay more to heat our homes than a miner will. So those machines now, maybe they're they're a generation or two behind, right? They go find a retirement home somewhere weird where there's excess energy, where the capex is low, and it doesn't matter, right? And so, again, they're just spreading these little uh, seeds, little citadel seeds around the world, spreading prosperity. And if you zoom out and squint long-term, you can see a future where we actually spread our human population out outside of cities. And instead, we colonize energy assets in the middle of nowhere mm. because that extreme abundance of energy allows uh, us to do cool things. And I'm not saying we're going to get rid of cities. Cities are actually pretty awesome. But the current model of cities is make them smart. You own nothing and be happy, everything's surveilled, living in shipping containers, et cetera. And I think having this distributed population model that could emerge through the uh, the ability to harness new energy assets allows us to spread out, allows a counterforce to the consolidation of power, and allows Bitcoiners to go to the foothills and, you know, live out live out this battle and, and not be absorbed by the, the Leviathan.
2: Wow, you said so much there, I'm trying to absorb it. The you live in minnesota we live in chicago i'm I'm just trying to think of like some way to make this energy thing a little more like down to earth for people we you go outside to say snow blow we get a ton of snow here you probably get a lot more there you guys probably get negative 20 sometimes you're almost in canada it is miserably cold out there and you go out there sometimes i don't know if you guys ever do this so you go out there to snow blow your driveway and you're like dude people used to live in log cabins (laughs) like 150 years ago with a with a fire and some wood And if that wood ran out, you were going to fucking freeze to death. Like there was nothing that was going to save you. And then I walk back into my house and I have a little ring dial on my wall. And, um, yeah, I can just make it 75 degrees. The amount of convenience, the amount of energy that we've harnessed and that we will potentially harness in the future. Um, I want to get cosmic here a little bit and talk about Kardashev scales. Like we, this could be the impetus that gets us to harness the actual totality of the energy of our earth. And that gets us to a type, what is it? Type one civilization for that. And then beyond that, you know, we, we create a Dyson sphere around the sun and then we have the entire earth sun energy or the solar energy, all mining Bitcoin. <laughs> that's where we could be. Guy, you just went
1: cosmic. You're right. Yeah.
2: That's where we're going to be. It's just, it's really humbling when you realize how far we've advanced in only a couple hundred years, even something like flight, like the Kitty Hawk that happened, I think it was 1912 or so. 50 years later, roughly, we were on the moon. Like these things, and I think this is almost seasonally as well. I know you mentioned the fourth turning a few times, but the seasonality of the way humans advance is similar. Like we kind of go through these fits and starts of a new technological revolution. Then there's a massive spurt of innovation on top of that. And then it kind of stagnates for maybe a generation or so. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of technology that seems like it's stagnated for the last 20 to 30 years, but then there's that next step change. And then suddenly we're off to the races again, and things could get completely weird in ways that we could never anticipate and it's exciting. And really all we need to do is make sure we don't kill each other long enough to wait for the next one.
0: That's right. I think there's a, I think it's a phrase called punctuated equilibrium, which is essentially looking at, um, the long arc of history. It could be biology. It could be uh, population dynamics and, and human society, but it essentially says that there's not this linear process throughout time, right? Back to your, your comment on cycles. Um, evolution is, is a good example here because there's periods where almost nothing changes. Human, our, our ancestors are the same for 100,000 years. And then all of a sudden a catalyst happens. Maybe we learn how to harness fire, for example. And then there's this exponential curve of changes mm. because we unlocked a new, a new uh, technology in this case. What did fire do? Quick tangent. Um, fire essentially made us humans in my belief. Or it's one of the one of the largest catalysts, let's say. Um, pre-fire, we were more like apes. We had an extremely long gut, big, huge jaws and teeth. Why? Because we ate leaves all day. And leaves suck. They take forever to get nutrients out of. You need a huge, long gut to extract barely any nutrients. And you can look at gorillas today, for example. They spend like 15 hours eating. They eat hundreds of pounds of, of leaves every day. And we can eat once a day. I can eat in 10 minutes and get enough calories for a whole day, right? And what happened was we harnessed fire. What does fire do? It unlocks more nutrients per effort, and it it makes new foods available to eat. So now we can go uh, take down a woolly mammoth and smoke the mammoth steaks and just hang them up in the cabin for a while until we're ready to eat them. And what that essentially did was it literally shortened our guts and what that did was it allowed energy to go elsewhere in our body. So we spend less energy digesting, which means our brains get bigger. We can sit around the fire and do some thinking, right? And that do created some Absolutely. That cascaded into uh, massive changes in our species. And that comes to a nice point that I, I, I really like, which is that humans and technology are symbiotic. Okay. Um, humans create technology let's say fire, then that fire changes our ecosystem, that, that technology actually changes us. And now we're new, and then we have new problems to solve. We come up with new technology to solve those problems, and that new technology changes our environment, which then changes us. And it's an infinite loop of humans grappling with technology and changing. So it's just a symbiotic spiral. Now, when you talk about uh, technology stagnating over the last 50 years, right? a Peter Thiel idea, I think that that's right, generally. And if you look at energy, for example, in the U.S., I think there's like one or two new ener- nuclear permits that got accepted in the last like 50 years or something like that. And the, r- the real innovation was shale and natural gas as a byproduct of shale. And so we accidentally improved our energy uh, productivity. The government did everything in their power to prevent that and it, it still occurred right and so what if we had an incentive to go out there and improve our energy uh how, how we relate to energy and i think that's what bitcoin mining is it's just an incentive to have us go out there and get our get our uh feet and hands dirty and master energy or at least take the next next lead forward i don't think we'll master it but um so that's bitcoin mining. it's just a simple incentive that anywhere in the hash horizon you can Put a Bitcoin miner there and consume that energy and get paid for it. And humans like those incentives. So if we're right, I I, I believe that we're going to have a massive renaissance in energy production, efficiency, storage, transportation, all the things that matter with energy. And if that's true, I think we could reduce the marginal cost of energy to approach zero, um, aka for day-to-day life, whatever we need for energy is practically free because we have so much of it. And I think it requires a catalyst to go to that stage. And I think that's kind of where we are. And if we have low cost energy, we can do cool things like take salt water and turn it into fresh water. There we go. No more water problems. Um, There's all these exciting new technologies that are only constrained by energy. Right, Instantly, those unlock. If fresh water is now practically free anywhere near the ocean, what does that do? That increases the carrying capacity of our species yet again um so again Malthus is wrong and we continue to prove that every single new technology now we talk about Kardashev scale um it's hard for me to imagine uh, acquiring one Earth's source of energy which is uh one on the Kardashev scale but if we're going to get there it's going to require enormous catalysts like this mm. I don't think Bitcoin's big enough because Bitcoin doesn't pay enough to create planetary scale energy but it might lead us to invent new technologies that are then required to then go there. Or maybe it just gets us one tier higher, right? Punctuated equilibrium, one tier higher, and that was needed in order to get to the next step, right? Kind of a great filter type idea in a more constrained, constrained spot.
1: I love this topic of technology and human symbiosis. It's something we take for granted. I mean, the fabric of who you are Is changed by the technologies around you, both positively and negatively. If we were to trend the last 300 years, I think there, and you take different technologies, you know, the internet, for example, there can be arguments made that there are some net negatives and there's profound net positives. For me, the way I size up Bitcoin right now is it's a, it's a potentially gorgeous and currently beautiful symbiosis between our species and technology. And that's where the, the term like gift comes into play. This is genuinely a gift for our species because it aligns a lot of innate incentives in a way that hopefully allows us to cooperate better. I also just to reiterate for the third time here in this episode, I I appreciate the parallel you draw that I think a lot of people don't. It's like so obvious that they don't draw this parallel between prosperity and energy consumption. We're sitting here, the three of us are probably in, in the top top 1% of the world's energy consumers, and we're probably in the top 1% of the world's wealth, right? I, I just, when I was reading this piece, I was like, all right, zooming out. Because there, there's parts of this thesis there like, it sounds too good to be true. But we see it happening in front of our eyes. Like when you have a technology that bolsters new energy assets, it's going to allow for the proliferation of wealth and income and and so on. And so that's where it makes sense that this is a spore that lands on a desert island and you could come back a million years later or whatever that relative time frame would be in Bitcoin world and find a thriving ecosystem. Here's my question at the end of this. What about Bitcoin is unique in this respect? Because I could see someone new or skeptical saying, okay, so why can't other cryptocurrencies do this? Why aren't there other Digital opportunities that can can match up right in rural Africa and create this. What makes Bitcoin unique in this respect to sort of usher in this renaissance in your view? Or can I know there's a lot to unpack there, but give it a shot.
0: Technically speaking, nothing stopping anyone from creating a competitive proof of work protocol that gets bigger than Bitcoin and and takes over this torch, right? Um, technically possible. Practically though, how how would that happen? Right. So in order for proof of work to be successful, the token has to be worth something, number one. So you have to now create a competitive money to Bitcoin. And money is a network effect. Right, It's also a substitution good, meaning you can't hold two monies at once. And so in that situation, every individual decides, do I want to hold BTC or do I, do I want to hold BTC2? Um, well, all my friends use BTC. It's worth more. It's accepted more places. That's a, seems like a better money. It's more secure and more proven. I trust it more versus this new thing. Right. And so I would say the, the competition there would more or less not allow another proof of work chain to, to appear. And I think that's partially why you see an exploration, an explosion of proof of stake or proof of whatever coins launching, because it's really hard to bootstrap a proof of work network. Yes. And The other thing you think about is you have to go through these stages in proof of work, which is that you start with a um, CPU, GPU type setup, a general purpose computer that does the algorithm. And then that has to go for enough time to incentivize a manufacturer to design an ASIC chip, a purpose built machine to run one hashing algorithm. And so, right, all these little phases you have to go through and you hope no one attacks you at that point, right? Hopefully Bitcoin miners don't point their energy assets there. And so I just don't see it possible or it's not probable that it would happen. And so I rest, rest sleeping pretty easy knowing that Bitcoin is the proof of work asset we need. I also don't think we need to. And so I don't see a future where there's a Bitcoin takes 90% and another proof of work takes 10%. Um, it's not clear to me why we would ever need that because as far as I'm concerned, money is potentially the only thing we need a blockchain for. Um, there might be other use cases, not not clear to me if there are and if there are i don't think that they're going to matter at the same magnitude as bitcoin so um sure you can go solve a problem that doesn't really matter good for you for that um i'm here to fix the money i think that's the the the, the most leverage i can apply to our species to produce positive outcomes so that's what i'm here for um yeah good good luck
2: i'm trying to think about this uh, in evolutionary terms like what that would mean and i'm <laughs> this is what i'm coming up with Imagine you, I mean, you're like a, you own a Python or something, right? And this Python has evolved to eat mice, but you're going to take some organism that has barely crawled its way out of the primordial ooze and expect it to compete with this thing that has been evolving for millions of years yes. to be a, an exact, the exact thing it needs to be to murder whatever's within its grasp that it'll has a heartbeat. And you expect this, I don't know, blind deaf mouse to, to survive in that cage. Good luck.
1: Totally, dude. It makes me think of, uh, I just looked it up. The quote you had from Andreas Antonopoulos in your piece, Brandon, which is fiat is bubble boy trying to compete against the battle hardened sewer rat. That is Bitcoin. (laughs) I love that too. And it's so true. This thing is just living in the doldrums, just hardening itself year over year in a global environment with so many diverse incentives and it's making it extremely robust in very short order. And this is what I think a lot of people underestimate when they discover Bitcoin for the first time. They expect that it's far more fragile than it is. I'm not saying it's perfect, but as you as you unpack this thing and try to poke holes in it, you realize like, holy shit, this thing is going to be insanely hard to stop, even if it's yeah. theoretically bad for humanity. Like if you're a politician that deeply <laughs> believes this is bad for humanity, which I would obviously vehemently disagree with, but I would, I would say the same phrase you just said, good luck because this sewer rat is highly highly evolved
0: yeah and on the competition it's, it's even more in bitcoin's favor right this new organism appears yeah it's young it's weak it's a juvenile and bitcoin's a little bit older and stronger but bitcoin's actually evolving and growing f- at a faster rate right because all of the different facets of bitcoin compound with their network effects so how many users have it the more users you have the easier it is to get more users Right, the more mining uh companies there are, right, the more there's going to be in the future. And all these different all these different layers. So Bitcoin's growing exponentially and you're just like barely taking off at the bottom. And on the uh on the dire wolf, or sorry, the uh sewer rat versus bubble boy, I, I like the analogy that I use now so I don't just rip off Andreas, which is that the Pomeranian versus the dire wolf, right? The Pomeranian <laughs> Is a human abomination. No offense, Pomeranian. It could pick any designer dog; they're cute, whatever. But the Pomeranian, we just inbred to our liking because we want a little cute dog. That th- you—what do you happens if you put a Pomeranian out your back door and it doesn't get kibbles from you every day? Right? How long does that thing survive? Or try taking that Direwolf to Starbucks with you and
2: feed it a puppy <laughs> yeah. whip. See what happens. That's
1: right. <laughs> it's gonna be a barista with her hand bitten off. I'll tell you that. Yeah, it's gonna exactly. be more than that. Yeah. shit's
2: gonna get sideways in that starbucks fast for sure exactly what dan i think we should let's pivot this thing over to the fourth turning i want to i want quentin to make people shit their pants here a little bit like whew. dan and i've both read the book and it, it is a it's a the saculum is what it's called it's basically the the idea is there's four seasonal there's seasonal generations right so there's four of them every 22 or so years the generation turns over to the next I'm going to let you go ahead and describe it for us and give people the good uh, 30,000 foot view um, and then give us some perspective as to where we are in the saculum at the moment.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So this was a book written in the late 90s, the same year that Sovereign Individual came out, which I think is unique. Those books are prophetic, aren't they? It's crazy. And it essentially takes the, the view that human life is cyclical, right? And this is counterintuitive. Most people assume life is linear, right? This like bad past to this better future type situation but it's not really like that we, we mentioned punctuated equilibrium there's like exponential curves and then flat points in evolution um, all of life is cycles the sun and the moon right those are years and months spring summer fall um, and if you look at society as a super organism we can kind of see these same cycles at least that's what the thesis is and they look at population and they look at okay all people born in the millennial generation you were all born in roughly the same context and so as we grow up we're sort of shaped by the same forces and then we sort of show up in the world as adults relatively similar because we're all forged in that way and then when we reach end of life uh we're all kind of similar also we play the same type of role for society and the author has identified four archetypes that just go in repetitive so every 20 years a new generation with a new archetype they just keep repeating and the constellation of those archetypes like is the hero um middle age and is the artist late stage or whatever you just move those pieces around the constellation defines the mood and that mood defines how society responds to its environment right and the main takeaway of the book the sexy part is every 80 to 90 years there's a really bad period of time the fourth turning he calls it a crisis and if you look at american history the previous fourth turning, the previous crisis period, was 1929 to 1945, uh, right? World War II, Great Depression. Prior to that, we had the uh, Revolutionary War, or sorry, the Civil War. Prior to that, the Revolutionary War. And so, generally speaking, it, it turns into a hot war. All the pieces of the game get reshuffled, and it's almost as if society uh, outgrows their institutions, right? So, if we look at the end of the last fourth turning. World War II, um, at the end of World War II, we have a new monetary world order. Um, The U.S. takes a a supreme role. We have uh, FDIC, um, NATO, the World Bank, IMF, all of these new institutions to try to more or less maintain stability in life uh, emerge. And that's actually a response to all the chaos we felt in, in the fourth turning, the war and stuff. We want to make peace we want we're done fighting we want stable life right that's the 1950s that's white picket fences leave it to beaver type situation okay then society goes forward another generation or two and we have uh the civil rights movement right that is the period where the kids who were born during that super boring post-war era where everything's stale the music sucks there's no culture they essentially rebel against their parents and create the psychedelic 60s a civil rights movement right consciousness revolution that's just a response to their environment when they were born okay then they grow up a little bit older the boomers they have kids and they don't want to grow up so they don't really parent their kids all all too well and that creates gen x okay and gen x they're the latchkey kids. They're left to their own devices. At age seven, they have house keys. They survive on uh, scraps of food in the neighborhood and random water hoses all day, right? They're just underparented. And what is what what happens when you create underparented people? You create cold, uh, independent, libertarian type folks, which is kind of what the Gen Xers are, a little bit of a rebel, right? Then we have the society looking around, they see these. These little kids that are just not going well, and I think it was—I forgot which president. There was this huge campaign to say we got to save the kids. The kids are horrible, right? And then in the '90s, you have the the millennials. We were overparented. You're all special. Um, baby on board stickers. Dare. Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Right. This whole society swings that pendulum back again, um, and that's that's the modern generation. That's where we are, and we're the hero archetype and traditionally we come of age during the crisis period which historically means we're the soldiers who go to war I'm um, cannon fodder sweet that's right and yeah. not great not great um the question is are we going to end up in another hot war maybe uh i think it's trending that way but i don't think it's i don't think that's destiny i'm not here saying there is a yeah. big hot war coming what i'm saying is in fourth turnings people look around the institutions are crumbling and there's chaos everywhere so we collectivize we try to solve the big problem socialism or communism or collectivism explodes during fourth turnings mm. um it's just our instinct to do so if you're not with us you're against us right that type of mentality yeah. and that's happening all over the world you see populism rising i think like wokeism is in some ways uh, a response like that cancel culture same deal And so now we're sort of in that. And what we need right now is a catalyst that's big enough to get us all to collectivize Mm. so that we can work together so that we can change, right? Humans don't want to change. So it has to get bad. Pain's a teacher. Here
2: I am hoping that maybe COVID was all we had to deal with. Like that would, maybe that'll be the thing and we can get away with, we'll slide one under the radar. This saculum will just spare us all from having to get tossed into inside cannons and blasted our guts all over chinese soldiers but maybe not who knows that's dude i've been <laughs> i've been going down this dark path of reading or listening to dan carlin i don't know if you've listened to any of his stuff about world war ii world war one but holy shit man was the pacific war specifically one hell of a meat grinder and you listening to that stuff and then kind of wrapping your head around the fact that it's potentially happening maybe in the next 10 years if this is any you know it's scary stuff, extremely scary, and people have forgotten about how totally fucked that is, the, a total war situation, especially now when everyone in the world, every state power is armed to the teeth with nukes. It is a very scary proposition to think about what could come to fruition if we're not very careful about how this is approached, and it certainly doesn't seem that these politicians are being very careful at all.
0: No, I think, I think in some ways the politicians are supportive of war. Um, and I, I think it's a good to tie this theory. Like let's put it in context because people think this is horoscopes for intellectuals or like some like silly doom gloom porn, like, Oh, you can predict the future. It's not really that it's just another lens to evaluate society. If you deeply internalize this model, this theory, you can sort of see the world through this lens and you can start to say, Oh, that action sort of makes sense through this lens, but it's not good. You don't build your life around one book's thesis. this is an emergent bottoms up human cycle thing that seems to be working even though it shouldn't be um and i think it pairs well with things like the long-term debt cycle right which is more of a top-down central planner steer the world type model and they seem to correlate pretty well and i would say um you you could say that the long-term debt cycle creates the conditions upon which people push back and it's actually the money breaking Um, It's not a perfect correlation, but they are chicken or
2: egg type thing, though. We don't know which way it is, you know,
0: totally. And there is no there is no linear things here. These are complex systems. One change over here produces untold consequences over there. Right. And uh, to wrap up on where we are, um, this decade matters. I I would say it matters more than any one of our any decade or any year or time period in the last 50 years, because we're going through the fourth turning now. And how this plays out will define the next sacrum. The next 80 or 90 years will be defined by how this ends. And so, uh, yeah, our, our actions have consequences right now that really matter. And then you say, well, what role does Bitcoin play? Right? Because as Bitcoiners, it's our duty to jam Bitcoin into <laughs> any topic we've ever thought of.
1: <laughs> into any orifice it'll fit into. Yeah. That's <laughs> right. Even if
0: it doesn't fit, you'll find a way. Find lube. And that's right. And- the lube in this case is, is essays. Um, so anyways, back to, back to, oh man, it's hard to not get derailed with comments like that. Um, Bitcoin, <laughs> let's talk about Bitcoin. Bitcoin's an institution, right? What we have is a lack of institutions and institutions are good because they put walls around society. They shape us, they give us structure. Um, they allow us to scale society, right? Law is good for society. Property rights are good for society. These are institutions. Um, so are the media and, and healthcare and things like that. But I just want to get the idea because Bitcoiners are allergic to institutions. They're generally good. Language you could call an institution. Money is an institution, right? So use it loosely. Um, and Bitcoin is a new type of institution. And what does it provide? It provides stability. It provides a way out of the chaos. It provides an alternative path. And it appeals to all sides of the political spectrum, even though it's easier for certain sides of the spectrum to grasp it today, it actually does appeal to all political persuasions. And so back to earlier in the conversation, we talked about saving yourself with Bitcoin. So if we if we watch individuals, orgs, uh, countries adopt Bitcoin, they're going to be less desperate. And on net, if there's less desperate uh, people in the world, there's less incentive for war. And so it's like, can we hurry up and get people on this new system before the old system crumbles? Right? But you can't go too fast because then you're going to have a bank run out of the old right. system. And so it's it's going to be messy. Um, but I do think Bitcoin can reduce the risk of, of a global cataclysmic event here simply by the emergent adoption process which saves people. Um, yeah. And I think it's good because also it's important to not destroy society. It's important to create a global money. It's important to have this layer in society i actually think it's our moral imperative to adopt Mm. bitcoin and there's a lot of reasons here but one of those reasons is um a lot of people in the world today cannot contribute to our species because they don't have enough money to get through the next day they're just trying to eat right or they live in a society with a shitty money so they can't save or they live in a society without free speech so they can't get their ideas out there or they can't raise money because there's no capital willing to invest in that country okay so if we have a global money that connects the world where anyone can participate on a legal playing field based on merit, what does that do? That allows the best ideas from our species to emerge. Those ideas can form, can can acquire capital, can form a company to bring new ideas to life. And all it takes is one Elon Musk hiding in Zimbabwe to get his idea funded, and it changes the world for everyone, right? Look look to the past. How many people, how many Epic piano players were there before the piano was invented that we don't get to listen to now right. because we didn't work hard enough to get the piano there. Um, scale that to any any of any niche you guys like. That is our moral imperative here. And so, yeah, we want we want a global money. We want to pull people out of poverty because it helps everyone. It's the same thing with markets. We want markets and we want inequality. Quick tangent here. People say we want to reduce inequality. That is nonsense. We, do, we want as much inequality as possible, because inequality means we're applying technology to a problem. And if you have inequality, it means because you created a bunch of value. Okay, So rather than complain about the ratio of CD, uh, CEO to janitor, what we should be talking about is, how do we provide conditions so that the bottom layer of the socioeconomic stack increases over time? Are we comfortable with the bottom tier? And how do we do that? We make them not poor. How do we do that? Give them good money. Give them cheap energy. Um, that's the key. And because all the value created with the person who earns too much money, that value created spills over into society, to society. It's not linear. It's not simple. It's extremely messy. And there's tons of bad things that come from capitalism. But it's still the best solution to provide uh, a better future for our species. And so... Yeah, it's our moral imperative.
1: Damn it. There's so much of what you just said that I resonate with. Amen to a ton of that. I think <laughs> if nothing else, a good starting point for people with Bitcoin is it's it's just momentous monetary inclusion. And money is base layer human language, human cooperation. And there are a ton of members of our species that are completely cut off or largely cut off from cooperation and innovation and upward mobility because they're cut off from the monetary system. So even in the realm of orange pilling, that's an awesome place to start with people is just Bitcoin is monetary global monetary inclusion on a scale we've never seen before with no real competition in sight. When we're talking fourth turning, I'm thinking of this part from your piece and, and just the fourth turning thesis in general. And, and that the idea in the fourth turnings is that the fourth turning is a period where the supply of order is low. It's at rock bottom. But the demand for order starts rising. And I think we're maybe starting to see and feel that. And Bitcoin is a, is a marvelous global cooperation tool. It is something that our species may be able to cling on to, as you've alluded to, as we go through this storm and these rough waters. I think the other lens to think through this from, which you do well in your piece, is is just what's going to survive back to the sewer rat thing. Like in in fourth turning environments, shit's going to get weird. Shit's going to get challenging. Things are going to be tested to their max capacity. And what is going to hold up under that pressure? And for me, when you think think financially and economically, Bitcoin is an anti-fragile, robust monetary system that I think will hold up through the roughest of storms. And that's part of the reason I've allocated uh, part of my net worth to it. Um, I'm just sitting here guys, hoping
2: that the author of the fourth turning is plan B. So (laughs) that way we're, we just don't have to fucking worry about all this bullshit. Like it's gonna, it's just not going to happen at all. It's going to be
1: completely wrong. Yeah. That's a thesis. We uh, don't necessarily, but you know what? There are, we can think it through optimistically, like out of pain comes prosperity out of hard times come good times. And, um, there is, there's a component of allowing things to fail and reset that we need to embrace. Hopefully, we can do it somewhat gently. Hopefully, we can slide this fourth turning cock in gently with a, with the appropriate amount of lube. Lots of lube. Hopefully, it's not Viking rape, you know? Yeah, a Viking rape fourth turning is a r- is a really rough one. They don't use lube. They don't. I think there are glass half full ways to look at this. We need we need an adjustment. We need a reset in a lot of different capacities as a species, and hopefully, Bitcoin is the KY jelly. Hundred <laughs> percent. I think we're gonna name this one Viking rape. Do you think that'll really I think
2: that'll so. really just blast this one <laughs> It'll off? Be our highest
1: downloaded ever. Maybe so. <laughs> there's so much more we could hit. Close us any way you want here. If there's anything you want to follow up on, there.
0: Yeah, I've got a little tangent here to wrap up because I think I want to pick on CBDCs a little more. Please um, do. And the reason is I think that that's going to be rising in society, and we're going to have to deal with that. And I think we should be ahead of it as Bitcoiners, and it sounds like we already are. But I'll I'll start with this. A lot of people are going to want a CBDC because the government's going to give you free money if you download the app. And most people are in a bad financial system uh, situation in America, so it's going to be really easy to onboard people. That's my fear. And then it'll be too late, and then we adopted this thing. So let's get ahead of this. And the way I want to frame this is uh, an old trope that technology is neutral, right? Okay, you can use a hammer to build a house, or you can hit someone over the head with a hammer. It's just how you use the hammer. And right. I think that that sounds true, but it, it misses the the grander point here, which is that technology is absolutely not neutral. Technology has a bias. Technology has wants and needs. And that sounds kind of weird, but let's break it down. So um, the other trope actually is optimis- optimism, right? Silicon Valley bros would say all technology is good because it allows us to scale markets and scale anything. And if it gets adopted, it must be good because we chose it um and the, the opposite end the luddites would say technology is bad uh, destroys community destroys our religion our way of life or whatever um, but it's really just more complex than that and multi-variable and so you might ask is a cbdc good or is a cbdc bad um, and the question would be good for who cbdcs are very good for central planners who want to control society but for the average person they're probably pretty bad uh, maybe the lowest socioeconomic class who doesn't want to work and they want free shekels from their overlords maybe it's good for them but on net pretty bad and it's also technology that will radically shift how we relate to our governments and it has a high potential for abuse so that's one way we could evaluate technology what's the potential for abuse and I would say CVdc is that's very very high whereas Bitcoin how are you gonna abuse a voluntary system that, right anyone can opt out of really hard to abuse that um and some technology is obligatory right and i think money might be one of them but let, let's go through some old ones so if you don't adopt the plow but you're the neighboring tribe or community does you're not going to adopt you're not going to survive the famine because when times get tough the other community is growing way more food than you if you don't adopt the gunpowder the longbow gold versus glass beads your society goes extinct right and so it really matters how we approach technology that's really the point i'm getting at and so what is bitcoin voluntary open global that's massive um massive for society and what does bitcoin want bitcoin wants universal property rights it wants to end seniorage it wants unlimited energy low cost widely distributed right bitcoin is pro-social pro uh cooperation, pro-markets, pro-humans. Um, these are good things for a society where the CBDC wants uh, total control, um, mass surveillance, picking winners and losers, empowering uh, the few at the expense of the many, right? So l- let's just think about that lens when we approach technology. AI could be another one we could explore, which we shouldn't do now. Um, but Yeah. Technology has bias. They want things and it's our job to steer our, our, how we relate to technology, right? You can't stop it, but it is our duty to shepherd this stuff because as we said, technology changes us, right? We create technology, technology recreates us. So it is our moral implication to adopt the right technology uh, as much as we can.
1: Yeah. That's a good angle.
0: The concept. And I think that the thing that
1: becomes so profound About Bitcoin and that really just supercharges the rabbit hole is when you when you come to the realization or you make the decision in your head that Bitcoin really does align morality with functionality. Sometimes technologies, you have one or the other. And in the Bitcoin case, you have something that I'm suggesting is going to work marvelously just based on game theory that also aligns with an ethic and moral form of human cooperation. And that shit doesn't come around all that often.
2: Absolutely. Well said. Brandon, thank you for joining us, man. That was some awesome insight you had, and we genuinely hope you come on and see us again.
0: Yeah, I'd love to, guys. Appreciate the time. We could have went 100 million other directions, so I look forward to it. And if you're up in Minnesota, please do give me a shout. we
1: Will do. A- absolutely. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much for listening, folks. If you're appreciating our content here at Blue Collar Bitcoin, You can genuinely help us extend our reach by leaving us a review on Apple or your podcast app of choice, as well as subscribing to our Blue Collar Bitcoin YouTube channel, where we post videos of these discussions, as well as other shorts. We are also live on Podcast 2.0 apps. Our go-to app for listening to podcasts is Fountain literally get paid in Bitcoin sats for just listening to podcasts. And you can also stream sats to your favorite content creators on the Lightning Network. Go find us in the Fountain app, linked down in the show notes. Lastly, we are active at blue underscore collar BTC on Twitter, and all of our social media, including Noster, Instagram, and TikTok can be found on our website, bluecollarbitcoin.io. Until next time, continue a relentless and open-minded pursuit of knowledge. Take care.